Hey, what's up? Welcome back to the show. This is David Scales for the Surf Splendor Network, bringing you an episode of Wax On with Ashton Goggins. Ashton is a writer. He's the new editor-in-chief of Stab Magazine. The ever-evolving landscape of surf media is an evergreen topic here on the podcast. And it's a perennial because just in this last decade, it's evolved so fast. And properties that we've loved, like Surfer Magazine, uh, but not just print properties, digital too, like Corduroy TV, they've seemed to have come and gone with just a real rapid succession. So the discussion of surf media, the landscape, what it looks like, how it's evolving, um, is something that's always relevant and it comes up with everybody that i interview on the show whether they're surfboard shapers writers filmmakers whatever um as a writer and a millennial or maybe he's actually a gen xer ashton has a reverence and a passion for both things the permanence of writing and he embraces the immediacy of the modern world of instagram But in both those platforms and really any of the platforms that he's working within, the focus is always placed squarely on storytelling, which is, I think, where Ashton and my own passions align. So with his new role at Stab, I was eager to hear about his transitioning, how Stab will evolve with the ownership shifts that it's gone through recently. Um, Just for those of you who haven't heard us discuss it on this show, Stab was purchased by Surf Stitch a couple of years ago. And then it's original, one of its original founding partners, Sam McIntosh, just purchased Stab back last month. So um, I wanted to hear about those things from Ashton and just have kind of an overall conversation about surf media. Everything that we discuss is available, of course, on surfsplendorpodcast.com. Feel free to leave a comment there in the comment section. I will ensure that Ashton sees it. And, of course, please continue to share the show with anyone who might be interested. As this show grows, it's a lot easier to attract high-profile guests like Ashton or like John Pizel last week. If you didn't hear that episode, it's worth listening to, so please go back and check that out. I actually have 188 past episodes in the archives, and everything is available completely for free on surfsplendorpodcast.com. This show solely exists off donations from listeners, so you can also check out how to support us in that way, again, on surfsplendorpodcast.com. So, without any further ado, here's my conversation with Ashton Goggins. I'll be back at the end to sign us off. How was the Danny Fuller thing last night? Did that happen no, last we night? Actually, canceled it. Oh until, no way! Oh no, they postponed it until I don't know further notice. Bummer. Um, but you're, I think it's, you'll dig the movie. Did it's you guys? Cool. Did you publish it on the website yet, or is that no, postponed? No, no, no. We're waiting for the premiere. Um, I don't know if it has something to do with Danny's show. He has a show coming up or something. Okay. Um, they're trying to collaborate the launch of the show with. Yeah, the I think they're trying to figure stuff out, and I think it was pretty short notice because we got we started like getting. The last cut of it, like on Friday, so we didn't really know we were going to be like promoting it or anything like that. Is um, it feature length or what's the time? It's like a six minute film. Six minutes. Yeah, yeah, okay. yeah. So house, it's um, it's with House Beer. So we've been doing the the, the Culture Shifter series with them, um, and this is just sort of a one off separate thing on Danny. Got um, it. And just sort of his path into the art world, um, and sort of his relationship to it, and sort of a lot of people that have gotten that have known him for a really long time. 
um, in that capacity or helped him sort of move into that space. Um, just sort of talking about who he is. Mm. Um, and have you ever talked to Danny? Never. Danny's like one of the nicest people I've ever met. He's a guy that you like, I'll run into him in Hawaii or at Malibu or something. And you just leave talking to him. Like you feel like, like he's a guy that's just going to do exactly what he wants and it's going to work out, you know? Mm. And you're like, it's cool that people like that exist where they're just like, I'm going to go do this and it's going to, I'm just going to figure it out. I think we all have that in us. And then we get bogged down by just even like Instagram, you get on Instagram, you see what other people are doing. And you're like, Oh, I got to yeah. either do what they're doing or post more frequently like they're posting and you just get caught up in it. Oh yeah. So it is good to see somebody just doing yeah, sincerely doing their own thing, you know. Yeah, and it was cool just to hear like the way that he sort of became interested in doing that as sort of you know his career path mm-hmm. um, of just sort of collecting images and you know that that sort of classic story of somebody just seeing this work that they've been collecting and being like, "What are you going to do with that?" Mm-hmm. And, you know, he's like, "Well, I don't know. What am I supposed to do with it?" Right. Um, and yeah, and I think it's cool that people like you know it's a, this guy from Hawaii that has this relationship with a place like L.A. and New York, and it's. You know, able to bring that culture to them that's like, it's not the typical, like, Americanized Hawaiian, like, luau culture. It's like, yeah. that guy's a, like, working class Hawaiian dude that was one of the best surfers on the North Shore. Yeah. Um, and who has this amazing artistic eye for photography. Um, yeah, it's cool. Is there anybody living a better life than he is in oh, the exactly. surf world? Yeah, like, exactly. Like, truly, yeah. wife, kids, yeah. like you said, Bi-coastal or tri-coastal or whatever. Yeah, beautiful family. Just Incredible like, yeah. family. And, like, and I look at Slater and I'm like, well, Slater might be living a better life. But no, he's not because Slater has so many responsibilities and obligations. Yeah. I don't think he ever gets a full night's sleep without yeah. his brain running like crazy. And yeah, he's got the beautiful whatever and like is able to travel. But it's not as relaxed as Fuller. And then I think, well... What about Taj? I think Taj has it pretty good because he's got A-list status. He's yeah. retired. But I think Taj might have like lived so well for so long that now that he's settled down, when his head hits the pillow, he still thinks of the days of yore. You know, and it's like, there's like, oh, well, I gave up a little bit of this to go do that. Yeah. Fuller, on the other hand, I think the guy's like right in the zone, dude. Yeah. He's got it. Yeah. There's and no I better think, example. What I think's cool about a guy, I mean, I mean, I feel like Taj is one of those like unique people that like can do no wrong in people's eyes. You know, he's sure. everybody's like just favorite, lovable Australian guy. You know, because we all grew up just thinking he was going to be the best guy ever. Yeah, and you know, thinking he was going to be a world champ and all this pressure, and that didn't affect him at all. And yeah. that's so rad to see because it's so easy to be like de- this defeatist attitude when you get done with this career and you're like, oh, I didn't win a world title. It's like, dude, that guy lived the craziest dream life totally. for so long. And he still is because people want to see that from him. Like that, that is like a brand that people will always get behind. Totally. Um, but with Fuller, it's cool because I feel like they're able. To, there's few people that are able to create like a sort of uncompromised second act that you can see that it would drive them for the rest of their life and keep them in the surf world, but able to grow beyond it. Right. Um, and I'm always interested in people like that because it's you know it's it's easy to get stuck in the surf world and feel like it's this like little insulated thing. Totally. Um, but it isn't, it's permeable, you know, you can, it, you can enter into it and be a part of it and still go outside of it and work and do these other things. Um, and not feel like you're selling out the culture or whatever, that you, you're bringing the best parts of it. Um, and it's cool that it's guys like Danny doing it, you know, he's yeah. a guy that when people, when someone meets him in New York and he's this really like intellectually 
like bright and conversational guy. It's like it gives this whole new perspective to what people think of as surfers. Um, and that's rad. Yeah, I completely agree. I'm going to switch chairs because this thing's squeaky. Oh, yeah. <laughs> Do you mind just no, no. one of those around? Yeah, totally. Um, I can grab a stationary one, too. Um, I'll use this one, just yeah. assuming it's not squeaky. <laughs> oh, actually, I got one right here. I don't know. Oh, cool. You can see that. Um, well, a lot of people, I think, know your name. And even more people, I would say, know your work. They've read your work, even if they don't know it. I hope. But <laughs> I don't know much about your origin story. Uh-huh. So can you give me the scoop? Yeah. Where'd um, you grow up and all that? I grew up in a little town called Nokomis, Florida. Okay. Uh, like just south of Sarasota on the Gulf Coast. Um, my dad was a surfer. My mom was like sort of a beach bum. Um, and yeah, they got me surfing really young. We didn't really get into it like really seriously until we were, like 11 or 12. Um, but yeah, just a little kid growing up on the Gulf Coast of Florida who rode like little, you know, BMX bikes down to the beach and rode skimboards all day. Um, were there waves? Yeah. I mean, with the Gulf Coast, it's... It's, you know, you can grow up and be a surfer there, but there's not waves all the time. We had to drive to the East Coast a lot. My dad and my mom were so supportive. They were driving, you know, it was like a three-hour drive, and there's probably eight kids that my dad taught how to surf in the neighborhood, and she'd be dragging all of us. Hmm. Like, eight little kids in a GMC minivan, like, a bunch of boards on the roof that were always flying off. Right. Uh, yeah, just groms growing up in Florida. Um and then, yeah, we, my brother and I, I have a younger brother who's like two years younger than I am. Um, we were super competitive when we were young. He was a really good shortboarder and I was a good longboarder. Um, and so my dad started doing the ESA. He was like the, uh, the regional director or whatever with this guy, Skip Beach. Uh, and so we got to sort of meet all the East Coast guys and we'd go to these contests and we'd see Slater and Matt Keckley and, uh, you know, sort of all these like East Coast heroes to us. Um, and so, you know, we got this sort of introduction to surf culture through that. And then, yeah, I moved to California when I was like 17 to try and be a pro longboarder. Really? Uh, yeah, which was, it was when uh, Jimmy Buffett was doing the, the Margaritaville longboard tour. <laughs> and uh, yeah, I moved out to, to Encinitas actually. And I was like packing boards at the Channon factory. I was riding for, uh, for Tony for a while. Um, like just packing boards at night and surfing in Swamis and Cardiff in the mornings. And uh, I was like a little punk rock kid, so I felt really like out of place in San Diego at the time. It was like, I was there for like a year. And I would just surf and go to whatever punk rock shows I could find and like eat burritos and I didn't know anybody. Mm-hmm. And then I would, I would show up to contests and I knew a few people from like when they would come to the East Coast. And yeah, it was like my f- introduction to California. Um, was there a legitimate living to make in longboard, oh, professional God. longboarding? No, no, no. I mean, is there still to this day? <laughs> no, no, that? it's funny. Whenever people would say, they'd be like, you were a professional surfer. I was like, yeah, but it's like kind of like being like a, it's like if someone said like, oh, you're a professional cyclist. And you're like, yeah, but I ride a unicycle. It's like, you don't make any money doing it. You know, I think I won, I think I won 150 bucks once at a, at a pro contest in, in, uh, in like Jacksonville that I won. But yeah, there's no money in it. Uh, but it was a cool. It was a cool time to be into it. It was like this is like the early 2000s. Um, so there was like a really small pod of longboarders from the East Coast that were, you know, super into it. They like, yeah. You know, it was like right around when the seedling came out and adrift. Um, you know, Joel was coming over and uh, yeah, I was like a Mikey to Temple and this, these kids Brent and Brandon Russell from Cocoa Beach, like a whole crew of guys from the East Coast. 
um, that had moved out here. Um, and yeah, we, I think we all did our, a respectable amount of time out here, but I didn't last long. Um, I think I lived out here for like a year. And then, yeah, I moved back to Florida. And we opened a surf shop. There was At the time, there really wasn't any shops in Florida that, or where I was from in Florida that were like a core surf shop. Um, and so I moved back, and two friends of mine and I opened a shop called The Compound. And I did that for like three years. It was you know, right at the time when like skateboarding got huge and you know, Blue Crush came out and like there was tons of money in the industry. And pretty quickly the store, we had like three stores and a skate park and it was like this huge thing, um, which is, they still have a shop in, in Sarasota. It's a little bit smaller now that you know, the industry is a lot smaller. I think they have one big store. Um, but yeah, I did that and then I decided I wanted to be a writer. I'd been working at the newspaper there for a long time. Um, and uh, my dad's a mailman. And he would come back from every single day at work with these crazy stories of all these people that he knew on his mail route because where we're from is a lot of retired people. So it was a lot of war, like, you know, war vets and, um, you know, just old people with stories. And uh, so he, you know, I was always fascinated by it. And he got me uh, connected with the local newspaper when I was like 17 or 18 years old. And I would do these like little local stories just while I was working at the surf shop, just going to like, retirement home like fundraisers and like just doing like community beat stuff uh and i loved it i just loved being able to just go and have any reason to go up to people and talk to them mm-hmm. um and so yeah i was you know working at the sh- at the shop and i was just sort of bored and I, I knew i wanted to go back to school um and i took this trip to new york with this guy that has shaped my boards forever now this guy larry mayo just to go and film and like shoot some footage up there and uh, and New York just like blew my mind. I was like, oh, I have to move here. Hmm. I, I was there for like twenty four hours. Uh, we did like we stayed in Soho for a night and then went out to Montauk, and then the next day we drove to Rhode Island. Um, and it just like changed my life. I was like, I have to get out of Florida. Like I have to like figure this out. And so I came back and I applied to a bunch of schools and I'd uh, taken some classes at community college and gotten really good grades. Um, and see, so, yeah, I applied to NYU and Columbia and uh, this school, the New School. Um, and I ended up getting in to all of them. The new school gave, gave me like an amazing scholarship um, because I was basically a poor kid from Florida. <laughs> and uh, it was like the best thing I ever did. I moved up there right at this time that these editors from this magazine, N Plus One, were teaching there, um, which was this really young sort of like radical culture journal that had come out of these five guys from Harvard that a couple of them ended up writing books that were National Book Award like uh, nominees and they were like really 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 amazing writers and they were teaching there so I got to study with this guy Mark Greif who um, to my mind is like one of the smartest writers working right now in criticism um, and I interned at the magazine and just like dove into it I was surfing still a little bit I was working at Mollusk in Brooklyn um, and and working at this literary journal and it was it was such a cool time like the surf culture there at that time the scene there was this rad little group of guys that were all living in Brooklyn that would do, we do these movie nights at, at Mollusk. Um, the, the shop there was the very dead end street in, in Williamsburg. And there was these giant like oil, like big drums on the other side of the street of the shop. And so they would project movies onto the drums and wow. play And we would like have big block parties. And I remember like right after I moved to New York, I was working at the shop and we were having a party and I was like barbecuing and like Alexis Bladell's like eating a hot dog. And it was for Joe Kern. He was doing a book signing. 
And uh, the owner, Chris Gentile, of that shop, who's now the owner of Pilgrim in New York, who's a really rad guy if you ever get a chance to talk to him, um, he was sitting behind the counter and Joe came up and he's like, hey man, uh, you think you guys could find like a, like a speaker or an amp? My brother's in New Jersey and he wants to come play some music. And we were like, what? And it just so happened that right below that shop was where uh, Thurston Moore from Sonic Youth had like his practice space for all of his bands called Ecstatic Peace, like his record label. And so like Chris knew everybody, runs down and grabs an amp and an hour and a half later, like Tom Curran and his bass player come like walking around the corner and we put on, uh, we put on searching for Tom Curran with no sound. And he just sat there playing guitar at like 10 o'clock at night in Brooklyn and everybody outside was solo cups, drinking beer. Uh, yeah, there was some incredible, yeah, it was pretty cool time. Uh, and yeah, it was just, it was amazing. Like that and through that shop, all these people came through from California. They would come out for the, um, for the fish fries that they would do. Um, and so I got to meet like Richard Kenvin and Manny Mandala and Christensen and um, Chad and Trace Marshall and Jamie Brissick and uh, and John McCambridge from Mullisk in San Francisco. Um, and so then, yeah, after I I was there for five years or something like that, but um, going to school and working up there. And then I moved back to Florida. Um, I got offered a job at the New York Times at the time. They had a paper in where I was from in Sarasota called the Sarasota Herald Tribune. Um, and I came back and I was going to do arts and culture, like just sort of beat reporting. And I ended up getting a, like, for some reason they needed a food columnist. And so for like a year and a half while I was like trying to save money to figure out what I was going to do, I had this job for the New York Times writing a weekly food column that was like the easiest work that I'd ever done in my entire life. <laughs> That was so fun. I just literally went around to all these little small businesses, to these tiny little restaurants, uh, and did reviews for like a year with my brother. Um, and it became this like whole thing in my town. Like I couldn't go anywhere without people knowing that it was me. You know, it was mm-hmm. like this very like cinematic like food critic thing, which was so funny to me because I had never. I mean, I didn't give a shit about food. I never worked in a restaurant. It was just like a job. Um, but yeah, I did that for a year and a half, and then I moved. Uh, I got offered a job at GoPro. Um, in San Francisco or in whatever they're at, uh, San Mateo, um, for like a four month contract doing like copywriting for their oh, website. Okay. And I'd always wanted to move to San Francisco. So I just like threw my stuff in my car and drove out to, to California again. Like what year was 10 this? years later? This was 2011. Okay. Great time for GoPro. Yeah. It was like right when they were rebranding their, I think it was the hero four that I was working on or the hero three. I forget. No, it's crazy. I don't even know what they're on now. I don't either, but I feel like it might have been pre four for sure. Two thousand eleven, I would yeah. think. Yeah, I guess. It, yeah, I'm trying to think of what, 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 which, which generation it would have been that I was there. It was literally those types. Have you ever worked any of those types of jobs, like copywriting jobs? No. <laughs> You're literally like copy and pasting, like and formatting text in spreadsheets. Yeah, and like every once in a while, tweaking a line to sound like you're a surfer. Sure, <laughs> and getting paid like retarded money to do yeah. it. Yeah, it was silly. Um, but uh, yeah, I did that for like four months, and then I was I moved. You know, somehow I lucked into this little apartment right out in the sunset in San Francisco, like right at Ocean Beach, like two blocks from Mollusk out there. Uh, and so I fell into this like amazing little community of people out there that there's like the I mean, Nokomis, Florida is where I'm from, and I can go there and I know everybody, but. I can't walk down the street in the sunset in San Francisco without seeing like 10 people that I know and who are like from such crazy diverse backgrounds and come from all over the country and are all doing cool stuff and a lot of really good surfers. 
Um, but yes, yeah, so I, I was living in I was living in the Sunset, and I I was working at the time. I got a job for um, this company, Sightglass, this like third wave coffee company mm-hmm. that um, these two brothers and Jack Dorsey from Twitter started, mm-hmm. and they hired me as their marketing director. And so I ended up doing like a lot of like weird like food stuff and events, and I ended up doing this series for Vice uh, sourcing coffee in Ethiopia. So I, would, I got flown to Ethiopia to go like to all these crazy coffee farms like in the middle of nowhere in uh, in eastern Ethiopia in the mountains, and like wrote a series for them doing that. And um, when I got back from that, I decided I wanted to. I was like I'd sort of gotten to know Lewis Samuels pretty well living up there. Um, and I'd been introduced to Justin Houseman, and I'd been writing for the Journal a little bit. I just turned in like my first story I think at the time, and. I just decided, I was like, I want to, I called my dad. I was like, you know what? I've been waiting too long to do this. Like, I want to write for the surf magazines. Like, I'm just going to do it. I'm just going to commit to it and like figure it out. Um, and so I talked to, you know, I came down and met with Hewlett and he was super supportive, like introduced me to a bunch of people. Um, and I had talked to Lewis about a few things and it was right when Chaz and Derek were launching Beach Grip. And I guess that they had approached him about the project in the beginning and Lewis, for good reason, sort of didn't want anything to do with it. He's, I think he's past the like negative space of the internet uh, at this point in his life uh, for his own reasons. Uh, but yeah, so he like mentioned it to me, and so I reached out to Derek, and I just threw him a story about I forget what I first wrote. It was something about Kelly Slater's like Pottery Barn like collection or something. Yeah, yeah, yeah like, <laughs> like a line of furniture or something. Yeah, totally. Clothing or... It was like so random, you know. And I, <laughs> That that would have been my entry into like writing about surfing. <laughs> yeah, it's like the the least noble way I could think of. But it was super fun, you know. It was right when they launched it, and I I loved uh, Stab when Derek and Sam first started it. Like it, 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 I think that they came out with their first couple issues when I was still in New York, um, and I just remember being like so impressed with it because it was like it was so Australian. It seemed so like modern too. Um, and at the time, I remember Surfer and a lot of the other magazines were, like, so just felt, like, five years behind the times. You know, they do a Thomas Campbell feature, like, five years after Sprout came out or something, right. you know? I just felt like they were, like, nailing it. And, uh, yeah, so w- when I had the opportunity to work with Derek, I was, like, so excited. Um, and, yeah, I just started pitching them stories, and him and Chaz were really supportive um, right off the bat. And, yeah, th- I, I don't know how it worked out, I guess... I'd been doing that for like maybe three or four months, and I met Justin Hausman from Surfer, who lives up in San Francisco, who's one of the most interesting dudes I know. He's like a full-on, like, if he was born 50 years ago, he would have been like Edward Albee or John Muir. He's just like a guy that likes to like disappear into the woods. Um, and we were introduced from through Lewis, um, and he sort of mentioned that there was some opportunities popping up at Surfer. Um, it was right when Brendan Thomas had moved over to the Surfers Journal, and Todd Bradonovich, who had been there, I guess, managing editor, yeah, um, had sort of stepped into that role. And both Justin and Matt Warshaw, who also was a guy who, like, I can't say enough good things about Matt Warshaw. Um, for uh, anyone who's list, who listens to this, who ever wanted to be a surf writer, find if you can get a hold of Matt Warshaw's email. <laughs> And ask him questions. He is the sweetest and most generous human being on the planet uh, when it comes to people who love surfing. And he was super generous with me with his time right around that time. 
and so we had a few conversations and he um he sort of told me to go for it you know i was i was at the time i was working at old navy like freelance making really good money and just surfing all the time and i there was an opportunity to just sort of freelance for the magazines, but I was like, you know what, if I'm going to do this, if there's an opportunity to do it, like I should go for it. And so I reached out to Todd, and he was coming up to San Francisco for like the marathon or something like that. And so we met, and the same day we met, I realized that, I don't know how I had missed this at the time, but uh, this guy that I had worked with at Mollusca, Jim Newitt, who's this English guy, um, really good longboarder, super talented uh, artist, he was there, uh, he had just come on as their art director. And that's where, like, you saw Surfer Shift, like, two years ago, where they did that, um, the, uh, the Jet McFetridge uh, cover, that addicted one. That's all Jim. So from, from that moment on, it was like, I was like, I have to do this. Like, Jim, I knew Jim super well. We had the same sensibility. Like, I knew that, like, him and I would work super well together to make magazines. Um, and so, yeah, so Todd and I started talking about a position, and they had, you know, his role that he had just left as managing editor was open, so I just sort of stepped into that. And, like, a week later, I bought a pickup truck and put everything in it and moved down to San, to San Diego, like, living out of my truck, working at Surfer Magazine. It was pretty crazy. Hmm. Um, yeah, and that was two and a half years ago, I think. Two years ago, something like that? Yeah. Yeah. It's interesting. When you put it all on a timeline, it's not that much time. You covered a lot of ground <laughs> in a short period of time. Like, as you're referencing, oh, when Brendan Thomas left the magazine, I was like, yeah, that was like a year ago, right? Like, yeah. in my head, yeah. it doesn't... I remember when that happened. It wasn't that long ago. Yeah. So you squeezed a lot of activity in or a lot of experience in, I guess, into a, yeah. a relatively short period of time. Yeah, I feel like I, I like, hit the ground running. Yeah. You know? And I, there was a part of me that was pretty conscious, like... I always, I always wanted to write for the surf magazines, but like I kind of felt like it probably wasn't the best place to learn how to write. I agree with you. And even as you said, like freelance opportunity versus taking a full-time position, until you kind of explained it, I don't really see the value in taking the full-time position totally. because using Danny Fuller as kind of a reference point, I feel like you can produce better surf-related art if you're not in the surf world all the time like if you're out there getting lots of worldly experience yeah. and then you just come in and kind of like focus that energy in the surf world that tends to be the best art totally. you know people who are like living a hundred percent surfing all the time it's just not as interesting yeah or people who are living in the surf industry all the time too. exactly that's what i mean yeah. yeah and it's i mean it's definitely i mean it's i think it's the the same frustrations that any job like that comes with but yeah, you think, you know, in my head, that job is like, you're on the road, you're like, you yeah. know, you're in the mix, you know? Like, I always imagine it being like the way that Jake Phelps runs Thrasher, you know, where it's like you're on trips all the time and you're getting to know these guys, like, in their, like, environment. But really what it is is you're going to meetings in drafty office spaces in San Diego with different brand marketing directors and stuff, you know? Right. Like, hearing about what they just did mm -hmm. and how to make it a packaged thing for a magazine. Um and that's not all the time, but that's but, a lot of it. <laughs> but you're also, if you're living in it, you're just under a microscope all the time and it's hard to get perspective, you know? And, totally. And I think that you can, I don't know, maybe have a more interesting take on surfing if you're out, um, I don't know, 
writing about food or learning about coffee yeah, yeah. or whatever gives you a more interesting view on the surf world, you know? Yeah. In totally. Ethiopia, doing the coffee thing, yeah. you come back and you're like, <laughs> it just gives you a different perspective. So I think yeah. there's something to be said for balance and well-roundedness and all of that, too. Yeah. But but when you explain it the way that you did, where it's like, no, surfer's taking on a brand new art direction, yeah. well, that requires 40 hours a week to really totally. excavate. Oh, so yeah. I get that, too, you know? Yeah. And, yeah, I can't say it. I mean, that was... I had such a, the first year at Surfer was so much fun. It was crazy. It was like, it was a total dream. Like, I think I started in October and like the second week I was there, I went on a trip to Mexico for the last like two days of filming for Forbidden Trim. Mm -hmm. Did you see that movie? Mm -mm. Everyone should watch that movie. I know. I've been wanting to. It comes up all the time. George is a genius. Okay. Uh, Yeah. It's just a super fun surf film that's mainly longboarding. Uh, But... Yeah, I was like, I jumped on that trip and then went to Hawaii. And like the first day I was in Hawaii, I got like the craziest barrel of my entire life. Where? At log cabins. It on was a, a shortboard or? Yeah, on like a, <laughs> on like a eight o. I was paddling out to rock piles. It was like twelve foot. It was massive, and I didn't want to paddle out at rock piles. I was going to paddle out at log cabins and paddle down. And I just watched Gavin Beshin and Nathan Florence paddle out. And I had this 8.0 that my buddy Griffin Stepanek, this kid from San Francisco, had made me. It's like black decked, like it almost has like a 70s outline, but full, it's a, like a quad fin, like full on tube gun. Okay. That I got made for Ocean Beach that I was like, oh, I'm going to bring this to Hawaii. And I was just paddling from log cabins up to rock piles and this like crazy wide weird one came through and I was like, this looks like a wave. And I just turned and went and it was like the, the craziest barrel I've still ever gotten in my hmm. entire life. I kicked out and like paddled up to Nathan Florence, who I'd interviewed before. I was like, hey, Nathan, I'm Ashton from Surfer. And he was like, what the fuck was that thing? Really? <laughs> yeah, it was nuts. And I just went in. I was like, I'm over it. <laughs> Can't beat that. <laughs> yeah, I went in, and, and Alex Kilowano had gotten it on camera, no and they way. had it on Instagram that day. I was like, gosh. <laughs> on on film or on just a photo? No, on film. They Like, like ran, an actual video. Yeah, they ran it as like the wave of the day or whatever. Crazy. And it was like, I remember like that night. And I feel like I'm bragging about it, but it was literally the best moment yeah, of my life. Dude, send me that clip. <laughs> I, I can't search two that years night, back in Surfer Mag's Instagram. Yeah, totally. No, that night we like went to dinner and we were like walking up to Haliba Joe's and Greg Long was walking up. And I'd met Greg a few times. And uh, he walks up and he's like, how's your fucking wave at Log Cabins this morning? I've never gotten anything like that. And right behind him was walking Shane Dorian. And I just was like sitting there like a little kid, just like so red-faced. and Soaking it in, oh, though, too. Dude. Yeah, it was crazy. It's rad when a friend sees a good wave, but if Nathan Florence is the guy that yeah. sees it and he claims it <laughs> and Greg Long, then that's epic. Yeah, it was, it's, it's still, I think, it's probably the best moment of my life surfing, for sure. Also, fantastic for your street cred. Starting yeah, out exactly. with a magazine. I couldn't and, like, have started on a better yeah. foot. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, Grant Ellis shot a full sequence of it, like, into the wave. It was, like, the most well-documented wave of my entire life. (laughs) Really washes away your Pottery Barn article about Slater. Yeah, exactly. (laughs) Yeah, and it's funny, though. That's, that's, you know, that's one of those things that no one could teach you in journalism school about surf riding is that, like, it does take a little bit of street cred to Hmm. get people to take you seriously. (laughs) Completely, yeah. Yeah. So, um... You said that your experience working at Surfer for that first year was really good. Um, I guess we can kind of continue on the timeline to talk about how you ended up with Stab now. Oh, yeah. But before we do, I'd be curious just to know, like, obviously, one discussion I want to have with you is just about um, the ever-changing 
role of surf media in this kind sure. of digital modern age. Surfer Mag, super well established. Um, but I don't feel like they've made the transition as successfully as certainly Stab Magazine has over to the digital realm. I'm curious what your experience was like in those last two years trying to make that transition into digital, where they've succeeded, where they've failed. Um, not to make you kind of talk crap about a former no, employer, no, no. but just like, let's be real. Yeah. They haven't fully transitioned. Yeah. Um, and it's the thinnest magazine ever. Exactly. So yeah. like, what are your, what's your view on surfer in terms of like, what are their strengths and what have their weaknesses been? Um, I mean, I think surfers strengths are, I mean, I think they've done a good job of tapping into their sort of archival like heritage. And that's a lot. Of, I mean, that's a lot of that's having Warshaw. You know, like having Warshaw there writing those sort of encyclopedia pieces, but then also doing the um, the archive section that they have in the magazine, um, I think has been really, really cool to see. Um, but, I mean, as far as like the systemic issues, I think the big thing with Surfer is that they're just, they're tied to a massive corporate media brand. You know what I mean? And so it's really hard for them to be flexible, like as a business model. Because I think pretty much everybody there would rather see that magazine as a quarterly thing or as a biannual thing that was like a beautiful book and then had this incredible presence online. Um, or as somehow a more robust monthly magazine. But it's, I mean, it's such a grind. Even putting out those thin magazines, it takes just as much time as it does to put together a 200-page magazine. You know, realistically, you just have less photos. There's still, I mean, those, those magazines still have probably 15,000 words in them. Um, but it's just getting the space. You know, it's like you end up with a 90-page magazine. It's, it's hard to justify the subscription cost, even if it's 12 bucks a month or uh, 12 bucks a year or whatever it is. Right. Um, so, yeah, I think that, they're, I think that they're, their model has to change. I, think that it, I hope that it will. Um, I think that you can change the, the art direction of it and you can change what it feels like and reads like as much as you want, but until it makes an impact on people enough to where they want to keep something on their table for the duration between those issues, you know, to where it doesn't just end up getting trashed until it becomes that precious thing no one cares like they just, they're just going to wait and see it online and if you're going to commit all that energy to making that print product and it's not going to make that impact you're blowing all that energy that you could be doing in digital right and that's what you see is like their biggest features are the ones that are repackaged from their print stuff you know like you see them sort of blow them up online and they expand the the photo sections and stuff like that um and I love that when you know that's the, their strong suit is tying the print to the digital. I think, um, but incentivizing people to engage with the print product is like a totally different game. You know, you have to be so, like, you have to be the surfer's journal. You know, and that's I think where they're going to have a hard time because you can't out surfer's journal the surfer's journal. Mm -hmm. They're going to I mean Hewlett's going to beat you every time. And now and now Jim Newitt is over there like he's their art director now. Um, and I think he's done an amazing job of making that magazine look modern. So yeah, so Surfer, I don't know. I, I think they have to. They have some. Uh, they have to do some like soul searching. I think as to what they want to do for the next for this next generation of uh, of how you know how it, how it gets seen, how it gets how it engages a younger audience, how it engages an older audience, how it engages our you know like us digitally. Well, you've explained a little bit on how they could successfully transition the digital portion, but how do you think they could um, 
improve the value of the print publication itself? What do you think their their card is there to play? I think it has to be a $25 magazine. You know, I think it needs to be a 200-page card stock, full bleed, beautiful photos, minimal uh, advertisements, something that pays for itself. And maybe you don't print 10,000 of them, maybe or 100,000 of them or whatever. You print whatever the actual market demand is. Make it a product. Sell it to people. And make people want to buy it. You know, like, that's the Surfer's Journal's model. Yeah. Um, Which is amazing. Like, that's why people love that, because it's just a family business that makes a magazine. Um, Otherwise, you have to commit to being, like, a full digital space. You have to be an agency, basically. You have to have all those things in place and have them all working really, really, really smoothly for brands to want to work with you. Um, If the market is used to paying the $12 a year subscription which is basically getting it for free, yeah. it would be very difficult to get them to transition to paying 12 bucks per magazine rather than yeah. per year. Um, but I agree with you, in theory, yeah. that would be the right pivot to make. It would just be tough to get the market to dip into their pocket, I guess. Yeah, but I, th- I think, you would, I think it's like you'd end up like crowdfunding it. You yeah. know what I mean? It's 2017. You can like figure out exactly what the demand is for it. You can mm-hmm. pre-sell this stuff and get it printed two weeks later. Like there's super easy ways to do this stuff and make it modern, yeah. but it doesn't fit into that old, like you're buying into a 12 month or whatever, 12 subscription a year advertising model yeah. that they've been selling for 20 years. You know, that's the thing is like they, they still have to go and sell these print ads. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's why you see like army bands and like all these <laughs> random things in there where you're like why like what is the benefit of like that brand is not benefiting from this advertisement that's what i was gonna say i don't think any of the, the advertisers are happy <laughs> like who is happy in this relationship yeah. and that's the thing where it's like you you can't just be somewhere that people can just throw something and hope that it catches like you have i feel like you have for a brand like that that has so much identity like there's so much value in that if they can figure out a way to make that be what they do. Totally. Know? They have enough goodwill established to where, even though I don't subscribe to the magazine anymore and I actually, it arrives at free for free at work and I still don't pick it up. Yeah. <laughs> they have enough goodwill built. <laughs> they have enough goodwill built within me to where if they said we're doing this big kind of rebrand and pivot and it's going to cost you 12 bucks a magazine I would buy that $12 magazine. I would actually dip my hand into my pocket and support them just because I appreciate all that they've done in the past and I like it and I identify with the brand. And so I would actually pay the premium for, let's say, six issues or so to sort it out to see what it is, you know? Yeah, because it's... Yeah, totally. Because that's like... That's transparency. It's Mm -hmm. being like, this is what we want to do and this is why. If you get behind this, like, support us. Yeah. Um, and we've got a lot on the line here. We have a lot of archive and identity on the line here yeah. that we need to sustain. Please be a part in sustaining it. When you're hiring for a small business, you want to find quality professionals that are right for the role, and there's no faster or effective way than through LinkedIn Jobs. Your time and capital are precious, and there is a powerful resource that can help you focus on what you're good at and integrate people into your team seamlessly to help grow your business. LinkedIn Jobs has created the tools to find the right professionals for your team efficiently and for free. LinkedIn isn't just another job board. 
Everyone is already on LinkedIn with their resumes and references. And now LinkedIn has designed a hiring platform to connect you with candidates specifically qualified for the job that you post about. More than a billion professionals meticulously organized to connect people by skill set to help us all advance our position. 2.5 million businesses already use LinkedIn for hiring, and 86% of small businesses get a qualified candidate within 24 hours. It's that fast, easy to use, and effective. LinkedIn Jobs can help you write job descriptions, filter the right person to you, and give you the tools to help you interview them like a pro. LinkedInjobs.com slash surf is where you go to post your job for free. Yes, totally free. Free. That's linkedinjobs.com slash surf to post your job for free. Terms and conditions apply. Yeah. And I don't I don't know I mean I feel like I'm giving them tips right here as a competitor, but We're all in it together, dude. We're all in it here together. Yeah, yeah and I think that so that was that's what I wanted to say though, is so I had to sit across a wall from the guys from Surfing Magazine who were, you know, to me, some of the most, they're such fun, talented dudes. Those guys were putting out a magazine every month that little kids would want to pick up and get psyched on, that everybody that was in the magazine was psyched on, you know, that had this, like, 50-year tradition. All they had to do was figure out how to, like, shift a little bit and transition and figure out a slightly different business model to, you know, to stay open, and they didn't, you know? It, it, was, it wasn't delivering the revenue that they needed for 10, and so they closed the magazine. And they had that opportunity to make, at that point, Surfer the most loved magazine on the planet because all of a sudden you have all of the talent of surfing moving into it. You have the vulnerability all of a sudden of these heritage brands, which all of a sudden everyone's like super nostalgic for and worried about. You know, it's like, oh, surfing clothes, how heartbreaking. It's like, yeah, well, you guys didn't buy the magazine for 10 years. Um, so all of a sudden everybody was aware of it, you know, and so it meant something. Um, and I thought that was their opportunity to do it. And I don't think that they have. Mm-hmm. And I think that there's, there's still plenty of time for them to do that. And I think that they, mm-hmm. I hope that they will. My only concern is that they have the vision to not to, to, to not be, like I was saying, to just to be different than the Surfer's Journal because you just can't have two of those in the space. Sure. And they're just, they're just such a perfect business model that they're just going to beat you every time on, on stories, on the writers that they're going to be able to engage with, the, you know, just the, the relationships that Hewlett has with those writers. Like, you're just not going to beat them. So they have to be a place that's like really fostering of young talent and that's got, you know, they have to get behind, you know, these younger guys and photographers and like figure out a way to make this another marketplace for these guys to want to work in. Um, Because otherwise it's just going to get stale. Sure. Um, So back to the timeline, how'd you end up at Stab? So when surfing closed, I had, um, I had sort of been thinking of changing my role at surfer for a while. There really wasn't a lot of room for me to grow there. Um, as the managing editor, you know, I was like sort of stuck between Todd, who was the editor there. He'd been there since, you know, I think that was the first job he ever had was like working as an intern there. Um, and so that, you know, we sort of butted heads a little bit and it just didn't really feel like a place that I could really like grow beyond what I had for that year that I was working with Jim. It was really working with Jim and Grant Ellis that year that was like, 
I felt like I did the best work I was ever going to do for that magazine in a weird way. And I started to feel that way that, that sort of next year after that. Um, just because the stuff that I wanted to do didn't really fit into Todd's sort of vision for the magazine a lot of times. Um, and that was sort of frustrating, you know. I'm a, I'm a very patient and generous guy, and, but I'm also, like, pretty opinionated, and, like, I have pretty strong beliefs about certain things in surfing, and I feel like I can back them up with the right arguments. Um, and, uh, yeah, I just sort of got a little bit uninspired for a while, you know. There was a few incidents that happened that made me sort of lose faith in people over there. Um, and it just didn't really feel like the environment that I wanted to be in to do the work that I wanted to do. And I felt like I had a lot of momentum because I was, I felt like I was getting a lot of really good stories and I was like find, I was like building these relationships with people all over the world where all of a sudden there was like this energy. I was like, I felt like what it was like to be at the center of that world where you can sort of make things happen and piece these things together. Um, and I really wanted to be able to do that. Um, and so I sort of stepped away in January and took this like field editor position um, which was like a freelance thing more or less and I went to Europe for like two months and just like went surfing and just sort of cruised around and, and wrote a, you know, I went to the Canary Islands and wrote a piece and was just sort of like getting a sense of what I was going to do next um, my girlfriend's here in Culver City and so I was living up in LA when I got back and um, I'd gotten to know Sam pretty well um, just like running into him like we'd sort of talk to each other out in the water at Malibu or I, I saw him in Hawaii a few times and Sam McIntosh from Stab. Yeah, Sam McIntosh from Stab. Um, and just being around here more often, I'd run into him and I'd stopped in the office and say hi. And you know, gotten to know Duma and and Morgan and those guys. Um, and I'm a, I'm a pretty diplomatic dude, so I, I feel like I get along with everybody. And sure. Uh, yeah, so I just sort of um, ran into Sam at uh, this little wave in Marina del Rey that we surfed during the winter, and we were just talking in the water, and that afternoon he sent me a uh, dm on instagram it was like hey like you want to get coffee like i want to talk to you about something and so we got coffee down the street and he showed me the first draft of the doc <laughs> the, which i thought was absolutely ridiculous of what doc the doc the, oh the doc <laughs> the feature of them jumping off the yeah, dock. yeah 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 he had just got post that, that trip <laughs> i'll post that surf podcast.com for anybody who's wondering what we're talking about uh yeah and i was just tripping we were like in the coffee shop and people were like sort of craning their necks looking at the sure. at, at the screen um, and yeah he just sort of told, he asked me you know, he told me that they were looking for an editor in chief um, and that he was buying the, the magazine back from Surf Stitch um, which I mean I remember I remember when he said that like I'd spent at that point I'd spent like six months like just like tripping you know I just like basically left my dream job because I was frustrated and all I wanted to do was this stuff you know and we were sitting there drinking coffee, and I remember just being like, just like shaking. Is this happening right like, now? <laughs> what? And uh, and so it was, you know, he just sort of wanted to know what my interest was, and sort of got, you know, to get to know me. Um, and I actually asked him about this yesterday. I was like, "What made you think that I'd be a good choice for this?" And he's like, "Well, I really liked you." He's like, "But I didn't know if you were a hard worker." He's like, "I thought you were kind of a cruiser." Yeah. <laughs> I was like, "Why?" He's like, "I don't know. Like, drive around an old pickup truck, ride longboards, and like, just seem to be surfing all the time." I was like, "Yeah." But I, you know, he's, I've been here literally like 16 hours a day since I started. Well, it's interesting. There's not a lot of hard workers in the surf industry. <laughs> I mean, truly, it's a concern. Yeah. And like, I've worked in different capacities, and it's like, yeah, you stand. 
head and shoulders above just by showing up early and staying late (laughs) because everybody else is cruising in at 10 after, you know, drink after surfing all day. Um, (laughs) Perfect. Perfect segue. (laughs) Morgan Williamson. (laughs) David. Morgan. Good to meet you. How you doing, bud? Uh, We're we're doing the podcast. We're just talking about how uh, there's not very many hard workers in the surf industry. Uh, I will, we can segue right into that. Uh, the hardest working journalist in the surf industry, Morgan Williams. <laughs> but, uh, but it's to the detriment of the surf industry. Like it absolutely. develops so slowly as compared yeah. to the tech sector. And that was, you know, it's funny. That was the, that was what I told. That was what I said to Sam when we had that first meeting. I was like, I'm so fucking tired of people in the surf industry talking about how boring the surf industry is or how boring surf culture is or yeah. whatever. It's our job and privilege to be able to make this stuff interesting. Yeah. If it's not interesting, it's our fault. Right. Um, and yeah, and I think that's like what I think was really cool about the opportunity here was like that's what Sam wanted. He's like, I want it's like a place where they want just want like stuff that gets people talking or like gets people excited about surfing again. Um, but yeah, so that's how it, we we just sort of started talking about it that day and. Um, it was maybe a month or two after that that they, I started officially the day that they bought the, the company back because wow. it was, otherwise I'd have to like sign a contract with Surf Stitch and then sign a new contract with them. Yeah. So I was just here like just working up till that point because I was like so excited <laughs> just working with these guys, um, and then yeah that September first they they bought it back and it's been a month now of like just full steam ahead. Well, congratulations, first of all, on, um, I think, you know, there's always an element of hard work and luck, <laughs> for yeah, lack absolutely. of a better term. <laughs> but luck, of course, is never just luck in and of itself. Um, sure. And so I the think the arbitrariness that, of fate. <laughs> I, yeah, I think that, like, you obviously worked really hard, positioned yourself, developed the relationship so that you were in the right place at the right time. But congratulations. Thanks, man. Yeah. It's, uh, it's, a, it's been a trip. <laughs> so I think um, I reached out to you. I mean, we we had been talking a little bit, but I reached out to you to let you know that like there's been a marked difference in the tone of what I've seen of Stab mm-hmm. since you've been with them. Um, there's kind of a conviction, I would say, to the tone yeah. that I didn't notice before or that just was different than yeah. it was previously. I think – any magazine, Stab certainly had a structure in place before you came along. But I would also think that the editor-in-chief, which is your title, right? Yeah. The editor-in-chief would also have a great influence on a magazine. So I guess what is your role with the magazine? There's a tone in place, but you're expected to yeah. produce a certain influence on the magazine. What did they hire you to do, and what do they expect of you? Yeah, I think that Sam, like like seeing the opportunity, buying it back, and like wanting to make a statement with it, he really wanted to to bring the the writing up to where their sort of creative direction was, you know? Okay. Um, and Elliot Strzok had been in that position for a really long time, and he, I don't know how long ago he he uh, left. And he still he still writes for us, but he moved to London, I guess. Oh, okay, I didn't know that. Um, and so he'd been sort, of look, been sort of keeping that position open for the right person for a while. Um, and really, he just wanted somebody that, you know, it's, I'm not like... Do, I'm not like working any magic. I'm just easy to work with with writers. Like I really love editing young writers' work because there's always something good in it that you can grab and pull out and help develop. 
Um, and that was something I really didn't get to do that much at Surfer, honestly. Like I, you know, most of that work was being done by Justin Houseman and Todd. Um, and so it's been, yeah, it's been really fun working with, with Mike and these other guys because it really, you know, it takes, it's easy to not see the, you know, in my own writing. Like I'd, I got to work with Steve Hawk uh, when I was at Surfer editing my pieces because it's like one of those guys I'd always dreamed of working with. And, um, being able to like communicate something valuable in a piece without like making somebody feel stupid is like one of the hardest things to do. It's like people are so sensitive when when their their writing is getting you know torn apart. Um, but there's always something there that they can sort of grab onto and find something like find a thread. Um, and yeah, it's been it's been really. Fun. I mean, the first couple of weeks that I got here, we had this amazing piece come in from Jed Smith. We had the all those WSL breaks. We had. You know, we sent Morgan and those guys up to Lemoore to, like, cover the Wavepool contest live. Mm -hmm. um, and so it wasn't like I sat down and all of a sudden had to put together this, like, long magazine with all these big erudite pieces. Like, we just happened to have <clears> – <throat> excuse me. We just happened to have these things all come together at once that we got to sort of make statements on, you know. Um, and hopefully it sort of set a tone and a pace, which isn't that different. You know, I just want – I want people to know that, like, one, like – we this is like what we love more than anything like we believe this shit like we're in the mix like there's nobody that's more in love with the culture of it and with like the you know we are doing this stuff all day long we there's nobody else that's paying attention to it more than we are um and that we're like fun and we don't take ourselves that seriously we write about surfing you know like it's supposed to be fun and like lighthearted and easy or it's supposed to be really honest and hard like it should if it, like the stuff that's not easy to talk about, like, it should be spoken about in a way that people want it to be spoken about. You know, if you want to talk about drug use or, you know, whatever, any of these subjects that, like, get touched on every once in a while these little pieces, I think that we can be able to take them head on with that tone and that connection, yeah. you know, because you're, you're actually making arguments instead of just, like, talking shit. Totally. Um, because I think that's what everybody here would rather be doing. You know what I mean? I think that anybody here that, that have, you know, that has an axe to grind about something, like, they better make those arguments and make them well because our comment section is going to take them to task and it looks bad if the arguments aren't sound um, and yeah so I want us to be a place that's like really critical that's smart but not pretentious that's like progressive but not patronizing you know what I mean that's like not that I want us to have like a really like sex positive like I'm totally fine with chicks being naked and dudes being naked and all of it if that's part of the culture like make it look rad yeah make it look beautiful make it look respectful um and with the writing like yeah i'm totally fine with people having opinions and their own voices and like all that stuff i want it to be a place where people can come and argue about stuff mm -hmm. you know what i mean like there's no reason for there to be a safe space on the internet for the you know like you can have arguments like that in a elevated respectful way you know yeah. like there's there's no reason for those things to be taboo subjects sure um because everybody's talking about them of in course. the comment section anyway you yeah, know it's yeah, not yeah. like any of this stuff is not being discussed uh it's just being like icebergged by everybody um so yeah so it's been fun so far i think it's um it's going to be really exciting putting out a magazine with these guys i'm really really um excited about working with the team in australia we've got we just um brought on um, this guy Shinya, who was their original creative director, um, 
and then we have this guy Dane Noakes over there who's amazing um, so to be able to work on those guys with print stuff next year is going to be really fun but like you're saying like to be able to figure out ways to really really elevate our digital experience like that's where my heart's at right now is it yeah, yeah. I mean there's certain properties that are in place like the stab in the dark thing yeah. um, there's other features like the dock that I wonder what your role is as the editor-in-chief I it I understand completely what an editor-in-chief does for a print magazine, yeah. but you're kind of, you know, uh, yeah. straddling both worlds, the digital and the print. And yeah. What, um, how is that role different for you in this? I think, I mean, I think that each project will end up being sort of a case-by-case thing, just because Sam is such a talented guy when it comes to film direction and producing stuff. Like, he's, as, you know, he's been doing that for... 12 years or 15 years or whatever, mm-hmm. you know, like producing these crazy concept shoots forever, you know, like putting flares on Bruce Irons's board and yeah. dressing Kobe Aberton up as a cowboy and towing him into chokes and stuff, you know? So that kind of stuff, Sam is like incredibly helpful for, mm-hmm. cause I'm just some random kid calling people up, trying to get them to go do crazy shit. They're going to be like, who are yeah. you? Um, but yeah, I think that for me, it's just working with Sam to sort of develop those ideas and make them feel like stab pieces the way that he wants them to feel. Um, and then just to sort of support all those projects. I mean, I really love directing films. Like, I love working on film projects with our guys. Um, it was one of my favorite things that I did at Surfer. You know, I did a piece about, um, about Sebastian Inlet um, that was like my... I'd wanted to write it since I was a little kid. It was about that wave being created and destroyed. And it was like this whole history of really like Florida professional surfing and we were able to do a little documentary about it it was like that's how I wanted my like anything that I do it's like a full photo retrospective a documentary and a written piece that to me is like the dream online feature because that's everything and a podcast Mm -hmm. you know (laughs) you know a podcast like with interviews Um, but yeah so being able to like figure out ways to bring in all those elements into digital features and then bringing back the the sort of like aspirational spaces that used to exist, like to me the like the lack of like the loss of the cover shot, like people not like having only like eight opportunities a year, or whatever, to have that. Like I want to figure out a way for that to exist, for there to be like this really beautiful space to like flatter photographers and surfers and create these moments that feel a little bit more important because the same energy is going into these features. It's just, they end up in a little square box that gets mm-hmm. pushed down the feed when three, three minute video clips get put out that same day. Um, and so just sort of like, yeah, just directing traffic in a weird way mm-hmm. and making sure that when they, those people arrive at something that's being pushed on them, that it's the best thing that they see all week. Mm-hmm. Um, which is not going to be easy. You know, it's like, yeah. um, so yeah, so that's sort of what I'm doing every day. Um, <laughs> Stab, in my experience, so like it, we haven't had access to it in the U.S., the print mm-hmm. publication, very frequently. I'd get random issues. Yeah. So most of my experience is with the digital version. But from what I see, it's always been pretty high performance centric. Yeah. And I think that longboarding and alternative boarding yeah. um, have notoriously been marginalized by totally. mainstream surf media. You come from a longboard background. Do you have any plans to kind of redirect that focus or any interest in? Oh, totally. Yeah? Yeah, absolutely. I think, and that's like first thing. It's I think it's so absurd. <laughs> that it's so yeah. high performance and I understand. Focus. I mean, Australia's its own place. Like, you can be a shortboarder only in Australia yeah. until you're 60 years old and you can get barreled all day long. And like, those guys, like, absolutely. I get it. I live in California and it's two foot, 300 days out of the year. You know what I mean? Like 
And some of the best surfing that's happening on this coast is a bunch of little kids on longboards and women on longboards. Like, mm-hmm. surfing Malibu and watching, like, there's 40 girls that shred Malibu, like, in rotation during the summer, who are, like, 13 or 12 to, like, 45. Yeah. Um, and, yeah, so I, I think that, I mean, I don't think that people will feel weird about that at all as long as it's the best longboarding that's happening. And mm-hmm. I, I have a really good relationship with the entire longboard community, so... Like Joel and all those guys are super excited for me to be here because it's a immediate authority on that stuff, you know, which nobody else has. Like that's the problem is that there isn't anybody that's like that, like lived and breathed that culture. Which, yeah. you know, it's taken. Yeah, I had to take my lashings for that when I was younger, and of it course. took me living in San Francisco to really to become a good shortboarder, honestly. Um, but yeah, I think it's ridiculous. Anytime you see a clip of Asher Pacey or Torn Martin or any of these guys, it's like the most watched thing that week, right? And then anytime we put up a clip of like Andy Neblis or Joel or any of these guys, it gets 150,000 views and people are so fucking psyched to see longboarding. It's ridiculous, you know, yeah. and you, they've done, you know, I, I end up having to see these like market studies and stuff that people do. Um, and longboarders make up such a massive, massive portion of, of surfers. And just like you're saying, alternative, whatever yeah. boards, uh, alternative craft. Uh, that's the other problem is the fucking stupid names mm-hmm. <laughs> they're just they're fun boards let's call them what they are yeah yeah uh, um, uh, so we share an office with these guys Gavin this is David so Gavin and Duma have general admission the, oh, yeah, to yeah. the shop over here on, on Brooks very cool uh, David does the, the Surf Splendor the podcast cool yeah. I can see. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I was like, fuck, well, there's a fancy-looking <laughs> Um, I'm curious, kind of moving on, uh, what magazines do you read? And outside of surfing, too. Outside of surfing. Um, I'm a huge fan of this magazine, The Baffler, which the, um, was like a culture journal that started in the 90s by this guy, Tom Frank. And I think the other guy's name is Matt Weiland. Um that was like it came out of like sort of the punk rock scene but it was a bunch of guys from chicago that wrote these like crazy like literary essays about like the beatnik revival of like slam poetry and like like just tearing apart stuff they they were like the most critical magazine on the planet um and then the the magazine that i interned at n plus one i think is probably the best like young like intellectual magazine ever okay um that's actually now it's published by a bunch of girls in in brooklyn but it was started by like five guys from harvard that this guy keith gesson and chad harback and marco roth and mark greif and this kid benjamin kunkel um and if anybody wants to read there's like uh an essay called uh is it what is it is it uh Radiohead or the Philosophy of Pop is probably the best. It's one of the best essays about music that I've ever read. Okay, I'll check um, it out. yeah. So I, like those two, I read The Believer, and I, I like like. There's a magazine called Serial um, that's I think has is like a beautiful like the format of it is really is really beautiful. Um, I buy the Surfer's Journal every single month. I don't know why I don't subscribe to it still. <laughs> um, and I read Thrasher. Like I, I feel like Thrasher is like still to this day like it's like the perfect magazine for a mm. subculture. Um, yeah, cool. What what surf media do you most look forward to? 
I mean, whether it's um, Instagram accounts or somebody's dropping an edit, like what do you stop everything to kind of pay attention to? Ooh, good question. Um, I'm a big – anytime Mikey Wright does anything, I love the way that kid surfs. Really? Like – I, like the more like raw aggressive high performance guys I mean Dane obviously um, Brad uh, Brad Flores you know that guy no sick East Coaster like sort of a thrashy style but he's always it's like he's always putting out edits from Portugal like surfing the cave when it's okay. absolutely treacherous it's ringing a bell is he a short boarder yeah 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 okay um, and then as far as like other I mean as far as alternative boards go I love when I see anything from Trevor Gordon that kid mm-hmm. from Santa Barbara oh yeah um, I think that kid's got such epic style. Um, and then really anything that is a slightly different surfboard than a standard thruster being ridden really, really well. Yeah. You know, like, I think that's one of the things that I really want to try and, like, push is I want to try and get the best surfers riding those boards and to see which ones are dogs and which ones actually move, you know? Because yeah. I know what some of those boards feel like and I know what performance shortboards feel like in good waves. and. I do think that those boards can be a massive crutch for a lot of people, mm-hmm. but I do think that some of them are like incredibly functional and would look amazing under a lot of guys' feet. So whenever I see something like that, where it's like you see Dane on like something different, or like you know, I think still one of my favorite clips ever is that little Surfers Journal edit that was of Dan Malloy and him trading boards. Yeah. Um, but yeah, and I should say that the Surfers Journal, any time that they put out a film, their little like their short films that accompany their pieces sometimes are so rad. Yeah. Um, well, kind of speaking of uh, stab and short films, Mike Pagan yeah. seems to be a great asset for you guys. Oh man, I've seen his work evolve since he was just doing stuff with his brother. Yeah, and uh, it's all really, really beautifully done. I feel like when they started, they were doing this series that was based in the South Bay. It was, yeah. had some Los Angeles reference in the name, and um, I was like, it's beautiful, but it's lacking in terms of like a plus content you know yeah like it had that like like sort of like grittiness to it but it yeah. needed it needed like a a grade footage yeah exactly and yeah. like matt surfs good but they're surfing crappy waves all yeah. the time or whatever it was and i feel like since he's linked up with stab you guys have given him some opportunities yeah. to really develop his craft yeah and um he's- actually the stab in the dark piece that just aired last week it was like it was the best stab in the dark, I think, thus far, and yeah. um, partially due to him, but also Jordy, I think, did a much better job articulating what he liked about boards and what he didn't like about boards yeah. than I ever saw in the past. Yeah, I think that, I mean, that that storytelling it was like the craziest process I've ever seen. Really? Him and Sam editing that <laughs> Mike and Sam? Yeah. yeah. Yeah, Mike and Sam. Uh, it was, you know, it's, it's been, I think they were they were working on it like two weeks before I got here and it's been a little over two months since I've been in the office. So it's okay. been like a two month editing process. Wow. <laughs> Maybe not that long, but yeah, just like so specific. Cause you know, it was, it was exactly what you just said. Like we had to like compete with the, the previous two for the, the insights for the drama, for the surfing and for like the personality. And I mean, we had to beat Dane. You know what I mean? It was, yeah. like, it was hard. And uh, I think they did a really good job with it. I think that Jordy came off like, like the guy he actually is, which mm-hmm. is like this sort of goofy, like fun, like super nice guy that can talk shit. You know, mm-hmm. he's a South African. I have to work with these guys all day. It's like Australians and South Africans can talk shit better than anybody I've ever yeah. met in my life. <laughs> yeah. Um, 
but yeah, it was cool. That was one of the, um, I think one of the really rewarding things was for people to, to come away with a different sense of Jordy too, you know, to really feel like they'd gotten a better, uh, like sense of who his sense of humor and yeah. just sort of who he is. Um, and fuck, he was surfing really, really well. Yeah, I thought I thought it was a phenomenal, or I thought it was a very successful piece. Yeah, like in terms of what it was trying to do. Yeah, um, and, and I, I, you said the surfing, he's surfing phenomenal. Yeah, but he wasn't. That wasn't the best surfing I had seen from Jordy. Yeah, but I didn't need it to be, and yeah. I didn't expect it to be. Yeah, what I wanted to see was him saying. Oh man, this board like it bogs and the water like comes up on the rail and then you see a clip of him bogging. Yeah. I don't need every clip to be of him killing yeah. it. And so because there's that all over the internet. So this the value of this piece yeah. is the board analysis. Yeah. And he did a great job analyzing. And it's been I think it's been cool as and a, and a big part of that project is seeing that that's the stuff that people want to see. Yeah. You know, that it's like it really is the like fundamental specifics of the way those boards interact with the water. Yeah. You know, it's like people are such dorks about it it's awesome you know yeah but i do feel like i I mean i've had to sit here and fondle these boards for like two months now and watching the clips and looking at the boards like i totally have a better understanding of shortboards do you totally yeah you know like i literally when i first went through that bag of boards you know we thought we might be able to keep one of them (laughs) so (laughs) i stuck a post-it note on 54 and i was like this board is so sick it was like perfect weight it felt so like the underarm test felt good of course, the 54 was the Hayden Shapes. <laughs> oh, it was? Yeah. Which, to be fair, got, like, the absolute cruelest hand in the uh, in the filming of that. It was, like, all, like crosswind and, like, three foot. And Hayden will do fine. He'll do it's fine. It's not going <laughs> to ruin his business. Yeah. Um, yeah, we just got a what, few of those. What was their feedback, by the way? Did Hayden reach out to you guys, and was he pissed? No, I, I don't think anybody's ever pissed about it, you know? Because okay. I, I think that people are disappointed that the boards didn't get better waves, which is totally fair, you know? Like it's, but, I mean, we went to the mentalized. It's like, we did it. You couldn't have tried any harder to get those, yeah. you know, those boards uh, into fairly similar conditions. Um, but, yeah, I mean, every, we don't really get a lot of feedback after the fact. I mean, I think they did the year before with Dane because I think Maurice Cole was really bummed because he made a board specifically for J-Bay. And they ended up surfing, like, Durban beach breaks. Yeah. Um, but no, with this one, it was more, like, sending out invitations to the shapers and then being like, I'm so terrified to go and sit in a crowd and have Jordy tear apart my surfboard. Yeah. <laughs> like, some of the more intimidating grown men that I know in the surf industry, like, genuinely, like, nervous about it. Sure. Um, which is kind of cool, you know? Like, it's, I mean, it is a contest, and sure, there's, like, flaws to it, and it hopefully doesn't hurt people's business, but what we hope it does is it like it gives people a sense of all these guys different sort of like approaches to it you know like yeah. we see we, we can talk about people's boards when they're under their feet in contests and stuff but there's so many moving variables to sort of isolate that yeah. you know because those 12 boards are really what's under every surfer's feet on tour you know besides i guess channel islands this year um but yeah i mean it's it's a really good way of looking at like what the sort of mainstream high performance shortboard is going towards, Mm -hmm. um, which, you know, I'm, I'm as valuable as I think that is. I do think that it can very quickly and thoroughly be expanded. That model of like putting different boards through their paces under a really intelligent surfer's feet. Mm -hmm. I think that you can, I mean, that's what we're going to start doing all types of different stuff. Like I'd love, I would love to see, like, I'd love to see Dane on a bunch of different boards. I'd love to see guys like Mikey Wright on crazy boards, you know, and then, you know, I'd like to see a longboard one. 
You know, yeah. I'd love to see Birch or Joel or one of those guys on 12, you know, different variations on the best, like, modern nose rider. Yeah. All white with stickers on, like, the, the basic stripes. It'd be bitching. It's a phenomenal idea. Yeah. Um, I do, my one kind of critique moving forward is I wonder if 12 is too many. Yeah. You know? Yeah. It's a lot to keep track of and then somebody is going to get the short end of the stick like Maurice did or like hey like where their their board's going to get tested in the worst conditions yeah and it's just a lot of information for the consumer to try to process you know I think six is a fair number yeah yeah I know it's the, I don't know where the 12 came from like where that actual number At, initially it sounds good like the more the better but yeah but just practically I'm not yeah. sure that it's the right number but yeah, what it ends up being like two boards a song for six songs. You know what I mean? It's <laughs> which is like a lot. It's like, I mean, well, it depends on how much footage you get back, you know? But I mean, for this, it was like, I remember <laughs> at one point we had a rough cut and Sam came out and he's like, I want one half of the waves that Jordy has in this edit right now. Yeah. Like we can't watch that many lefts at macaroni. Yeah. You know what I mean? Like you can only get so much of that. Totally. Um, but yeah, I think that there's, I think that there'll be other ways I mean, I, I don't know. I don't know how the, how much that formula will change. I think that they yeah. like the way it is, and I think that it. I think there's some little things you could do to it. I think that a lot of people were, they wanted to know the dimensions. They wanted to know, you know, like what. The, I think that when we did the the shaper feedback ones and the, or the the little shaper profiles before we launched the film, I think that those were really important. Mm-hmm. Um, so I think we got to bring those back. Mm-hmm. Um, you get a lot of mileage out of the one. Oh, any t- feature, dude, totally. Yeah. yeah, and especially, but but then also like anytime you type in Matt Biolis's name, you can go and watch this really bitch in three minute film of him talking about making like his idea of a the perfect high performance shortboard. Right. Um, and so it gets mileage that way because people exactly you know, anytime that people come across that they're going to watch it. Yeah. Um, and I think it's important to have those guys featured as much as possible, I and agree. not just those twelve guys that we're talking about. Like, I want to be able to do stuff on Alan Gibbons that used to. There was like, you know, CI's Ghost Shaper Forever that makes bitchin' boards, or Dave Parmenter. Like, you know, I want to put these people in front of the camera because they're they're rad and they know more about surfboard design than just about anybody. Right. Um, and they can build boards with the best of them. So, like, give I would you know it doesn't take much effort on our part to figure out ways to give them. Um, a platform too. Yeah. Um, and underground shapers, you know, like guys that, you know, there's so many world-class shapers that, that don't have the aspirations of having a pro guy on exactly. the CT, but still make the most amazing high performance shortboards and have epic groms coming up the ranks on their teams that end up jumping onto those bigger brands when they move on. Um, who I would love to see profiles on it or like include them in these different projects. Well, so that's actually one of my questions. It's a perfect segue is just kind of now you as an arbiter, uh, whose profile would you like to see elevated over this next year? Who are you most excited? Whose stories are you most excited to tell? That's a good question. Maybe it's a surfer. Yeah. Maybe it's a shaper. Maybe it's just an somebody. So I've been working on this feature for a long time. Um, I really like those sort of like deep, like sort of retrospective pieces, but I've been working on a piece for a really long time about San Clemente in the 90s and early 2000s, I mean late 80s to early 2000s, but sort of like the lost generation. Um, and that's something that I'm really like looking forward to working on this next six or seven months because it's going to be a massive writing project for me. Like just basically like all of those characters that we all grew up on. You know, I think that 
the momentum generation gets so much credit and gets so you know they're not played out but they're just that's who people are always doing like those sort of backwards looking who was the most important you know because people in surfing because they had somebody documenting so much of it totally like there's just a lot to go back and look at and because they're still around but and at the highest level too. yeah but for you and i i'm sure i mean i don't know for me the lost movies me were too. way more important to me than taylor Steele's movies you know yeah taylor Steele's movies i would watch them once or twice when they came out and i was super psyched to see who got the ender and it was cool to see all those guys like getting you know the best footage or whatever their like weird hijinks were but i must have watched those lost movies a thousand times yeah me too. you know what i mean we went through lost across america and five five nineteen and quarter what's really going wrong a million times and mm-hmm. i know that everybody else did whether or not they they you know like identified with that sort of derelict culture or not it was such a huge part of our childhood yeah um and i think that that deserves the the like the time and the space and there's some dark stories in that place you Which, know all the better that makes for better totally and it's <laughs> part of san clemente that's what makes san clemente yeah. the sort of very complex place that it is you know it mm-hmm. has this like dark like sort of derelict side to it but it's also like pristine orange county real estate with you know upper middle class trappings totally um and yeah and matt and mike and those guys are like the, i think that they are two of the most important people in surf history of the last 25 years you know mm-hmm. what those guys have i mean matt's like you know contributions to surfboard design i think cannot be overstated that five five nineteen and a quarter fish i think is probably the most important board to come out in the 90s you know what i mean like that was the board mm-hmm. um and then just him transitioning to this like very like sort of you know not clean cut but he's like he's a professional guy you know he's running a very like big like clean california business and he has these you know, amazing surfers on his team that they're not Aaron Cormican from 1998. You know, it's not Wardo. It's not, you know, Justin, uh, Madison, Justin Madison. (laughs) Uh, you know, he's got Carissa Moore and Kolohe and like these real like athletes. Yeah. Um, it's cool. He's got, you know, he's got his, his rad little daughter painting on his boards and like, it's, he's a different guy. Yeah. Um, and uh, it's cool to see people, like, grow into, you know, to become different people. Right. Um, and so, yeah, I'm really excited about working on that. And then as far as, like, watching people develop, um, I'm actually really excited to see Kanoa. Like, I don't know why I feel like that kid is such a dark horse because he's, people don't know if he's American or if he's Japanese. And they, you know, I think they, they just sort of, like, put a, like, blank face on it. But that kid's yeah. got some heart. Yeah, totally. And he's, you know, he's he's probably gained 15 pounds of muscle, and him and Zeke and Leo and those kids, like, those three kids, like, I think the next couple of years, they are going to be pretty radical to watch. And they're best friends. They push each other like crazy. They're, like, com- three completely different personalities. Mm-hmm. Leo's, like, this super sweet little Italian kid. It's, like, has this amazing, like, supportive family in Italy, yeah. you know? And Zeke's this, like, t- you know, he's, like, this classic, like, tough Hawaiian power surfer. With the most insane aerial act, yeah. Too. Who's just got like you don't, springs. You yeah. totally don't expect it because he's the way that he's shaped and the way that he approaches the wave, and then he'll fling the craziest airs, and you're like, "What?" Yeah, it's really yeah, he impressive. just won the contest in Portugal. Oh, did he last yeah. night? Yeah, he won the QS. I saw that uh, the quarterfinals or the semifinals were set. Canoa was in the semis yeah. as well. 
So yeah, awesome, good for him. Yeah, those kids are crushing it, and so that's and I th- think that's what you need to see. Like you need to see a kid like Kanoa talking shit to Mick Fanning in mm-hmm. a in a way that's like, you know, a little bit cocky, a little bit playful. They're like, whoa, like yeah. people were telling that. You know, if if someone's telling you that to like calm down, that you're being cocky, like you're probably doing the right thing as right. a surfer right now. Yeah, <laughs> you know, because yeah, yeah. nobody else is like flexing their muscles. Yeah, you, have, you know, you might see a couple claims on a wave, but nobody's like puffing their chests out in front of a camera. Right. Um, so that's cool to see. Yeah. Um, and then, yeah, I mean, I'm, I'm honestly really interested to see what Kelly does with this next year. You know? Yeah. Uh, I think that his foot injury is pretty intense. And I think it'll, it'll be interesting to see what he decides to do next year. Um, and with that, like, what that guy's going to do with his free time. Right. You know? Like, I think he will be. You know, like, that guy's had. He's been operating with the craziest schedule on the planet. And I'm sure he still will keep one. But it will not be the same one. And hopefully he can you know, do some cool shit. Do you think he comes back to the tour next year? Um, I mean, I think I have no idea. I think that depends on what that tour looks like. Yeah. I think if it's what they're talking about where it's like six contests and they fly to the mental eyes for like a world title event, he's going to absolutely want to be a part of that. I agree. And he's going to want to win it and then leave. You know what I mean? (laughs) That's my thing. I think my claim is goes into full recovery mode this year, like completely, you know, um, gets healthy yeah. and then hits it hundred percent steam next year and maybe even wins the title. How, how good would that be? It'd be the best. <laughs> It'd be the best. Cause all it of these, be, it would be like the perfect ending to our childhood. You I know agree. What I, mean? <laughs> I agree. He can't let us down now. Like, but that's the thing is like, dreamers in here, his, right? dude, I just, <laughs> yeah, no way. So that's the thing. He's failed us for the last couple of years because he's suffering yeah. from these injuries and stuff. Yeah. This downtime is all that he needed. That's right. And now he's going to come back. And He's been setting us up for this this whole time. I agree. That puppet master. I agree. <laughs> Who's your pick for the world title this year? My pick for the world title this year is Jordy Smith. Yeah, me too. Yeah. I it's want easy. Jordy to win it. I okay. want him to get one and then... And- <laughs> Yeah, Jordy deserves. I want. I don't want this to be another era where like just John John wins the world title for ten years. Yeah, you know, yeah. I want. I want there to be like someone coming at him every year, because uh, otherwise it won't be interesting. And Jordy's ripping. Like that guy is on fire. I love seeing that guy surf right now. I think um, when he's doing, when he's surfing at his peak, there's really nobody that can compete with him. Yeah, like the power that we see out of him. It's like John John's super gnarly. Yeah, but Jordy like obliterates lowers you know when, totally especially as the a guy surf footage in, yeah and like i love julian's polished lowers act and yeah. felipe's high flying lowers act but jordy freaking demolishes yeah. it you yeah. know and so i think that um the jordy that we've seen in the past with the rodeo flip and like that alley-oop and um at north point yeah, yeah, yeah. that kind of stuff we don't get to see from him in yeah. contests very much, but I think that with Chris Gallagher's help and whatever, like he's refined his act enough yeah. to win contests and to, to strategically make heats and to win a world title. And then if he can win that this year, show up next year yeah. with that strategy plus kind of the the raw Andy Irons. Yeah, totally. Like improv. fuck it, I won it already. I'm just Dude, going for it. It'd be next sick. year. He could yeah. be so like imagine gnarly. Jordy just like surfing like just like. No fucks given. Exactly. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. That's where I want to see the tour go next year. Yeah. Like, I want to see, like, everyone... Because I want to see everyone, like, feel like... You know, John John won his title. If Jordy wins one, like, all of a sudden, like, it's just, like, 
just a raw fight Everybody's, for it. Yeah, everybody has to yeah. put it on the line to survive, yeah. which we haven't seen for a while. Yeah. We get pots advocating for 70% surfing, and that's what's won a, won, yeah. won a world title up until now. You know? Yeah, imagine, like like we were just saying, Zeke and Leo and those kids yeah. able to surf that way instead of surfing safe. Because that's you, whenever you see those kids like just let loose, Kanoa at, at lowers, yeah. that like that frontside air-to-turn combo, I've, Yeah. Dude, it was like that is that has to be where surfing's going. Totally, you know, like full fledged, like lead foot, high performance, like power surfing with airs. Exactly, it, it's like it's sick. I totally agree. Um, and there's um, the right guys to do it. Yeah, yeah. Interesting time. We're definitely leading into an interesting time. Um, in the sake of time, and you and I both have <laughs> obligations throughout the rest of the day. Uh, final question for everybody interviewed is just what was the last surfboard that you rode the last surfboard that i rode was a 6-3 matt violos rock up that i've had for four years that is the greatest surfboard ever made rock up the rock up i'm not familiar with that board it was a board that he designed with with beshin and wardo it's like a it's i mean it's a full-on shortboard but it's like a slightly volume forward pintail like full like tube shooter it's a the best board i've ever owned my brother when i when i quit my job doing the coffee stuff and was like, I'm going to be a surf journalist. My brother was like, I'll buy you two surfboards. So he ordered me two boards from Mayhem that Mayhem handshaped me. And that when I went, like, when he pulled them out of the bag, they were light pink tints. <laughs> uh, and I've had them forever. They're like, I've, I've taken one of these, one of those boards, the, the 6.3 has been, it's been four years of traveling with me and it's still, it's still the best surfboard I've ever owned. Where'd you ride it recently? Uh, I surfed it at Lowers the last time. I haven't surfed in probably a, really a month and a half, dude. I've had, a, I've had like a, basically a broken thumb. Oh no. Um, that I need to go get checked out now that I have health insurance. <laughs> yeah. Well, and the waves have been flat and it's for been literally so flat. three yeah. weeks, like, and yeah. not, not, not even <laughs> long boardable flat. Yeah, totally. Like fully, fully I've flat. tried. Yeah. yeah it's crazy. I've tried. I've, I've driven to Malibu with my longboard on my roof and not surfed. I know. It's <laughs> I'm crazy, sat on the beach dude. just like smoking a spliff going, why do I live here right now? <laughs> well, I think um, there's swell filling in today. Yeah. And there should be waves this weekend. So if your Friday, thumb is Saturday. feeling okay. Yeah. I'm yeah. going to try and get a. Uh, I'm going to try and get a uh, an entry into that one wave one fin contest this weekend. Oh Malibu. really? Yeah. Um, I, I don't know if anyone. Yeah, that is something that everybody should check out this month. Uh, it's like a Instagram contest where everyone can like kids from all over the place submit waves, and the winner gets into the duct tape in the next duct tape contest and wins like five grand or something like that. So sweet. Pretty cool. Very yeah, cool. Waves look good, and it's uh, it's honestly the first weekend that they'll will there will have been surfed since I started this job. So. I'm going to go celebrate. Get on it, dude. <laughs> All right. Thanks for your time. Yeah, man. Thank you. Yep. I can see the turning of the heat. I've been deceived by the clown inside of me. I thought that he was a righteous, but he's a babe. Something's turning me. I'm wearing a bonnet. Thank you, Ashton. Stabmag.com is their website. I'll link to it in the various things that we discussed on surfsplendorpodcast.com. Leave a comment in the comment section for Ashton, or honestly, the best way is just chime in on Instagram, at surfsplendor. I'll tag Ashton in every post related to this episode, so you can click over and follow him. Make sure to rate and review the show in whatever podcast app you listen in. One recent review by Sophie gave me an underwhelming three stars and asked, where are the women? 
good production and interviews, but there's an absence of female voices. There are a ton of awesome female surfers and some extremely skilled female shapers. Would be great to hear from them. Surf culture is still so sexist and exclusive, and a podcast seems like a great way to open it up. End quote. Great criticism, Sophie. I felt embarrassed about that for some time now, and um, I'll put that into my 2018 plan of things to correct. Another review gave me uh, four different skin-colored thumbs-up emojis. I don't know if this person is speaking for themselves and three friends of varying skin tones, but the positivity in your five-star review is appreciated nonetheless, so thank you for that. Please feel free to send any feedback that you think will provide insight for potential listeners and uh, simultaneously stroke my ego. Five stars are always helpful. And uh, I hope you enjoyed this episode with Ashton. Chaz Smith is actually back from Las Vegas today. He happened to be there when that horrific shooting happened. Um, Not at the concert venue, but nearby. So he and I will recap that and everything that's happened in surf culture next week in an episode of Grit. And Scott Bass has actually been in France the last week or so. So I'll reconnect with him next week, too, for an episode of Spit. Until then... Enjoy the Quicksilver Pro and the Roxy Pro in France on WorldSurfLeague.com. And more importantly, just get back in the water, share some waves, and shred on. Yeah.